Bautam three years, three, four years ago, I attended a conference at the East-West Center, University of Hawaii, Sustainable Future Conference with um, environmentalists, from particularly from Japan and the, and the U.S. And at one point, one of the speakers who was a, um, a leader in Hawaii, the chairman of the <coughs> Board of Natural Land and Natural Resources, told a story that uh, I was struck quite deeply by. He had uh, recently had a phone call from, from an astronaut who a couple of years before had been circling the planet in his spaceship and described how he would circumnavigate about every hour and a half and often he was pumping away on his exercise bike, looking out the window. And he said he was struck by two very potent experiences, direct experiences. One was he saw, counted in the 17 days he was spinning around our, over 100 forest fly, fires in the Amazon region alone, wildfires from um, clear-cutting and development and so forth. It was horrible effluent spilling out into the streams, estuaries, suffocating the shoreline along South America. He felt great agony in his heart, great pain. And sometime later, he would be over the Pacific Ocean, million-square-mile blue wilderness. And he'd look down and he'd see this emerald necklace of islands. That was the Hawaiian Islands. And his heart would be just filled with this blissful feeling of beauty and appreciation. That juxtaposition caused him to, uh, when he returned to Earth, to call the leader of, political leader of Hawaii to ask, how can I help? Such, such beauty as this, as I've seen, I cannot describe, and I want to see that it's preserved. How can I help? That was the essence of the story, and I was quite moved by it, not knowing many other details. It, it actually helped, it helped frame our search at the time for land for our, our Dharma Center in Hawaii. And I, I didn't even know the depth of its influence. I, I knew having been born and raised, that I, I loved Hawaii. I knew of its specialness, that it was unique on the planet. It had a unique ecology, a, a, a unique ethnicity, a unique physical geography, setting as it does in the middle of this wilderness, east-west, and uh, uh, a unique mixture of spiritual traditions, very unique spiritual geography. Uh, so, with, these, with this image of, of um, this astronaut's description of seeing the planet and what he saw and how he described Hawaii, I was reminded of um, Joseph Campbell's statement sometime before he died that the, the image of our view of Earth from space, 
that we now had because of satellite photography was perhaps humanity's common archetypal symbol. Pulled, would pull everyone together in some sense of commonality to, to have that image now that humanity can do such things. And, um, you know, I reflected on that and it really inspired for me the search for um, land that was traditionally a suitable practice site, you know, that's out in nature, spacious, uh, it's quiet, has beauty, uh, and even a, a forest setting, if possible, in the, in the Southeast Asian tradition of, of forest centers. And that, it be any, that there be a certain ecology of the land, that is, a land that has not been so destroyed that we could preserve, perhaps even restore to the native species that were there, or protect the native species that are there. And, and even sacred sites, because it's not long in the Hawaiian Islands uh, that there was a whole nother uh, couple thousand years of peoples there, original peoples, with their own deep value of connection to the land, to earth, to life on earth. And that if our land perhaps had some cultural sites by which we could remember those who came before and the wisdom they brought, that it would be an appropriate way to plant and root the Dharma Center in the West. And, and, and guided by that, you know, our, our search continued for about another uh, year or so, and until we were actually at the land that, that we found, our really the experience was the land found us, for when we were there, we were quite grabbed by it. It seemed to wrap itself around us, and it had all these qualities. Beautiful, spacious place with forest uh, on, the, on the coast, with streams, with uh, enough of the native uh, flora left to protect, and fauna, a rare species of birds, and the conditions to bring more, to restore, back, cultural sites such as the agricultural tarot terraces, sacred to the previous um, uh, predominant culture that was there. Their agriculture was their spirituality. They saw no difference. Uh, waiting to be restored there. Uh, a place that has a lot of natural mana, spiritual energy, that uh, as we've been discovering, anyone who comes to the land uh, it's quite overwhelmed, quite taken uh, by the power of it. And then interestingly, the, you know, in the process that's been involved in, in um, securing the land, you know, the legal process and the um, community process and, and on our, or our own organization, this, uh, this astronaut found his way into our into our process. One of our advisors was, is a, was a former um, trainer of astronauts and it, with, in, with NASA. And she volunteered at our last board meeting uh, last fall to try and contact him. His name was Charles Brady. And uh, we contacted him and 
Before I knew it, uh, we were having a, a 45 minute phone conversation with him. Charles Brady was a, is a captain in the US Navy. He's a medical doctor, he's a scientist, and he is a, a NASA mission specialist. Uh, and I must say, the conversation with him within five minutes had, you know, goosebumps all over my body. And uh, certainly by the end of the conversation, I was streaming in tears. Here's what he had to say. He said, uh, shortly within the conversation, he said, I may as well have been a four-year-old child, you know, uh, with all this training of being a doctor and a captain and a mission specialist and a scientist. I wasn't prepared to view the Earth from space as I did. I came back a different person than the one who went up into space. So he was spinning around, as I said, for 17 days in this capsule. He said, I feel really fortunate. It was as if I was at the end of the line for the world's greatest movie. You know, and only by circumstance did, did I get in. Someone put me in the front line and I got to go up. So I was, you know, I was literally unprepared to be spun up to the atmosphere, as well as psychically. He said, if the rest of the world could see what I and my colleagues have seen from space, we would have no concern for the well-being, the future of the Earth. He said, I now have so much to give back what I experienced up there was a, a, a conscious, visceral thing. I felt viscerally connected to life on Earth, a, a pull to Earth, and across the board, massive, powerful pull to life on Earth, to living things. He said, I had, I had heard or read a little bit about you know, this concept of interconnectedness. Nothing prepared me to experience it directly, actually. He said, you know, and by this time, I, you know, I had been calling him and saying, I didn't know what to call him, you know, Dr. Brady, Astronaut Brady, Captain Brady, you know, so I was kind of stumbling around with terms. And he said, and you know, he's a military man, so he has his own formality too. He says, oh, no, sir, sir, call me Chuck, sir. Call me Chuck. <laughs> So, at, when he talked about this interconnectedness, he said, it just blew me away, sir. It just blew me away. He said, I have no answers, no new information to offer the people of Earth. But I felt the mystery of it all. I felt mystery beyond mystery beyond mystery. All the, all the concepts collapsed, the political divisions of this country and that ethnic group and that geography, it all just disappeared. I have no words to explain it, he said. He said, and by this time we had shared also what we do, he says, I deeply believe in what you're doing and I think you're right. How can I help? 
think you know what I'm talking about here. Deep, visceral pull to life on earth, an innate sense of belonging, having all the conceptual uh, overlay of his training collapse, to see for some moments life as it really is, this changing mass of powerful energies as he looked down at the planet for 17 days, seeing it in a way that he could possibly have never imagined it. And all his training, all his conceptuality fell away for that. That's what we're here for to practice. You're not here for a Buddhist experience. I hope none of you have a Buddhist experience. Charles Brady didn't need to know about the Eightfold Path to have some kind of deep spiritual experience and awakening, a deep enough awakening to motivate the rest of his life. You know, at 50-something, he says, in the short time I have left, I want to do whatever I can to help our planet. Whether or not Buddhas appear in this world, Dhamma is. Truth things is, the universal nature, the lawful nature of things just is. What, what the Buddha called yata bhuta, yata bhuta, uh, which means something like the as it is nature of things. Zen tradition calls it the suchness of things, the as it isness. Buddha discovered this as it isness. He didn't create a doctrine. The Four Noble Truths are, are um, impermanence, satisfactoriness, selflessness, emptiness. These aren't invented ideas or concepts. Concepts. They're not a new doctrine. They are what Buddhas discover. They are what enlightened mind or heart sees directly. The as it isness of things. Brady's experience was a, a universal spiritual experience that had a degree of deep insight. We could, with very little thought, you know, fit it in easily to um, the vehicle of the Eightfold Path. But it's not necessary. He saw for himself the collapse of his scientist mind of his uh, medical doctor mind, of his captain in the military mind, even of his mission specialist mind. He did get the work done that he was sent up there to do. But when he didn't have to do it, it just fell away by the awesome vision he was experiencing for his 17 days in this little monastery called a spaceship. The scientist in him could not comprehend the explosive power of what he was seeing down there when geography uh, disappeared, when political lines disappeared, when ethnic differences fell away. He may not have become a deeply enlightened being at that time, 
but it awakened in him a spiritual path, one that is is uh, as strong in him today, four or five years later, as it was when he came back to Earth from those 17 days of retreat in space. That sense of being a four-year-old child that he felt up there, that allowed him to touch the mystery of it, the mystery beyond mystery of it all. This is a deep experience that at one time or another we all know in deep retreat. It has no real words. Looking down on the earth, the same way that we look at our experience with a growing sense of this wise non-attachment, non-identification to experience, seeing this yata bhuta, the as-it-isness, seeing how things are, the, the vivid, alive, and transparent nature, the as-it-isness of mind-body phenomena, of the sixth sense door experience appearing moment to moment, all of our lives. Brady feeling to a relatively profound degree the dukkha, the vulnerability, and seeing the fragility of our planet, the forest fires, and the great damage, the great harm that humanity can cause by its unconscious activities. And feeling that pull to life on Earth, a very natural pull, a very innate pull of belonging, of connection, the heart that feels, the heart that loves. I think, to some degree, it is innate in all living beings, finding its expression in its own way with every species of being. In, uh, in February of this year, more or less in the middle of the, the six months or so, that the uh, Hawaiian humpback whales are in the islands. They spend their, their summers in the Aleutians to the north. And they come down and, uh, and hang out in their pods, various places on every one of the islands of the seven, certainly the seven uh, main islands of the Hawaiian chain. And I, I went with a friend one day from, from Oahu to the island of Molokai, about, about 30 miles away in his boat. It was one of those really silky Hawaiian days, the water like glass. Every few miles, we seem to intersect a pod uh, and it's, it's, our, it's our obligation not to go near them. It's a, a law, in fact, to stay at least 100 yards away. But every time we saw one, we would just, we would just stop, do nothing. And three out of four times, they'd come and investigate, particularly the calves. They'd like to come up really near the boat. And one, one in particular was maybe 20 feet, 20, 25 feet fairly young, and came up, and our boat was about the same size, right next to and under, you know, almost like it's measuring itself against the boat. And its mom, the, 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 um, the cow, is, you know, in the background, like about from here to the opposite end of the hall, 
just kind of waiting. And if you jump in the water, you can hear their, their hunting uh, song, so forth. And then, then the baby will go back close to the mom. And the mom will kind of turn over and turn back again. The mom is about 40, 50 feet and about 30 tons, 60,000 pounds. And the mom would come, when she rolled over a bit, her pectoral fin would come up. And once or twice I'd see the, the calf come up under her. And her, she put her pectoral fin over the little calf in an act of obvious affection all 60,000 pounds of it. And it was so endearing and so illuminating about just the innate nature of connection, of, of the heart of beings reaching out. And I thought of the conversation and talking with Chuck Brady, this, this massive, powerful pull, conscious, powerful pull to life on earth, that belonging. Seeing things as they are, feeling that pull, and the result, as we learn in our practice, is this also innate motivation of compassion to help, to alleviate, alleviate suffering, our own and all beings. That motivation that brings us to retreats, that makes our life a practice of self-liberation, and to help alleviate the suffering and liberate all beings. That motivation of the, in the Theravada, it's the Brahma Viharas, in Mahayana tradition, the Bodhicitta. That motivation to live from that place of unconditional love and compassion. And this is exactly what I felt from, from Chuck Brady. When he saw what he saw after the collapse of all his sort of conceptual overlay, all he wanted to do since he's come back is to make his life a vehicle of, of help, of aid, of alleviating suffering, of helping the planet, ecologically, spiritually, any way he can. I was struck by his um, comfort in speaking with such intimacy say those things that he could say on the phone about very deeply personal things. And, uh, and the honesty with how different he experiences life, how he could, with this non-attachment, view himself as the scientist, the captain, the mission specialist, and so forth, and also to give an indication of who he really was, free of any identities. And the clarity in talking about how he saw and experienced this conditioning of mind give way. The work that we do here, the work why we take up the Eightfold Path, what the Buddha called the best of all conditioned things, the greatest refuge of conditioned things, the Eightfold Path. In his his final words in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, among his final words were uh, to tell all of us, his immediate disciples and all of us, to, to work out our own salvation with diligence, to be a refuge to ourselves and to work out 
our own spiritual uh, quandary uh, with courage and diligence. So we come to do this work. And if we can just appreciate that a little bit, we do every day. You know, every sitting, every little effort we make to, to appreciate that, to regard that. It's a, it's a gradual training. The Buddha reminded us again and again. It's a gradual training. We come up against many distractions. Just to, to make it through, more or less okay, one sitting. It's good. It's good enough. <laughs> we had this uh, delightful guest with us one year, 17, 18 years ago. Uh, his name was uh, Paul Reps, the author of 20 books or so, like uh, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, Goldfish and Signatures, and um, uh, Gold and Fish Signatures, How to Meditate, all kinds of books. He was 87 when he came to live with us. And um, there's many delightful stories to tell. But the one I have to tell right now was uh, he, he, his diet then was avocado and papaya, which is maybe 1982 or 83. And recently I met a friend at a retreat in New Mexico. He said, oh, yeah, reps lived with me once by Haight-Ashbury, 1971. All he ate was avocado and papaya. <laughs> so he, he came and he was just this extraordinary presence, always kind of pulling the rug out and uh, keeping you on your toes. Uh, so his challenge, once he moved in with us, was to get to the market. And, uh, you know, he, he, he wasn't too fond of things like automobiles and, uh, and highways and whatnot. So it was a major thing for him to kind of get out and walk the few blocks and get to the, into the store and make it back. And, and he made a big deal for uh, some week before his first journey about having to cross that fearsome highway. It was called Kalani Ani Ole Highway. Uh, it was just a, a, you know, a one, two, three, a four-lane highway. And in fact, there was one of those things you could go up the stairs and walk over it, you know. <laughs> but for everything, reps is a major thing, you know. It's a big spiritual challenge. So one day he came back in the evening. It was his first trip, and he had a big, two big bags full of mangoes uh, and uh, papayas and, uh, and avocados. And he walked in and just burst in, and we were there with guests, and he said, and made it, he said, Today, I saved my own life. <laughs> he made it across the highway. So. And I, I think of that as a metaphor for you know, how we just make it through every day, how we make it through a, a, a sitting or a, a walking, how we even make it through a moment. If we're mindful in a way, we've saved our lives in that moment. This conditioned mind it, it, it must fall away just momentarily in order for us to, to see this yata bhuta, this suchness, this as it isness of life. The, the, the Buddhist Pali word for the conditioned mind is papancha, papancha, like some mixture of molasses and peanut butter and tar and superglue. The, the, the name even has that feeling. And it means mental 
proliferation, fabrication, embellishment. It's the mind that immediately wraps around the bare experience and turns it into a something, a conceptual something. It's the, it's the way our world through the six sense doors is woven into a, an interpretation of what it is instead of the yata bhuta, the actuality of what it is. Five centuries ago, um, Western science started being able to sail around the great oceans of the world. They were able to do this because some very brilliant minds in, in Europe uh, uh, figured out a grid, a longitude and latitude grid. And the instruments for, for building this grid and for installing it in ships and locating ourselves on it. It was, a, it was a brilliant discovery. It allowed the ships to go all around the, all around the planet and discover all that the Western world discovered. But it is a, a as we know, it became a, uh, a key a keystone aspect of how we, how this Western scientific mind views all things. For the navigators were relating more to the grid than to the actual environment. They, they'd look, to find out where they were, they'd look on their maps, they'd look on their sextant, they'd use all the, the latitude, longitude information and instruments to find out where they were. Interestingly, for thousands of years before that, two, maybe even 3,000 years, if not more, there were already navigators in the, in the uh, Pacific world who were using 100% total awareness and connection to their immediate environment to get them around. They did not need to have a grid. They not, did not need to locate themselves on a, on a created uh, information grid to figure out where they were and where they were going. Instead, they learned to read the environment. They learned to read the, the natural law in turbulent systems, how, how the stars cycled in particular patterns, how clouds behaved in particular ways, uh, in the morning and again in the evening and during the day, depending on the winds and how winds behaved and how ocean currents behaved. The more skilled could look at the ocean at any one time and read five different currents or waves because of different storms or, or trade winds or the stream, the ocean streams, ocean big ocean currents that move. See and understand all of them. And this is how they would navigate. This is how they would uh, tune in and read without any grid where they were and where they were going. They held in their mind a map of the ocean and a map of the heavens. They could read it even with their eyes closed. They could place all the stars and know how they traveled by mirroring in their mind the globe of the cosmos. And they could even feel through their bodies 
the currents that they felt through the boat, through the canoes, into their bodies. So to, to hold that image, uh, that to illustrate a direct connection with experience, as opposed to one through a grid. When we see through the grid, that's that papancha mind that dresses up bare experience. Uh, it, it's, the, it's the mission specialist, the view of life, view of experience. So we're quite removed from it. It becomes an interpretation. Papancha obscures naked reality, obscures a radiant natural mind. We relate to an idea of ourselves. We relate to an idea of others. We relate to an idea of the world experienced through the six sense doors. We hear a sound, for example. If there's not a sufficient degree of awareness, we are relating, as a mission specialist, to car. The concept of car, the concept of the engine heating system, concept of a cough, of a bell. And we react to that concept, whether we, if we like it with grasping, if we don't like it with rejection, with aversion. In practice, there's a certain pushing process by which, if we're blind to it, we're tumulted continually into this papancha mind. And we're continually either dressing up our bare experience in these concepts or in some way judging the way we're going about our experience. Not learning to lean back on time, lean back in the moment and let things just arise and appear. Not learning how to um, refine our own instrument of the heart or mind. The instruments that need tuning within us, the strings that need tuning within us, such as mindfulness, investigation, energy, joyous interest, or that, um, that sense of wonder, that Brady experience looking on the earth. That's, the, that's piti, that's that joyous interest. That's one of the awakening factors, one of the enlightenment factors. Our calm, concentration, equanimity, the tranquilizing factors that balance the energizing factors of investigation, energy, and wonder. Those are, those are what should be tuned. Those are what we can pay attention to then that properly allow the scene as it is, the yatabhuta of experience. Not trying to grasp on, not trying for an insight. Insights arise because of conditions. And the conditions are a mind that's finely balanced between energy and tranquility, investigation and calm, joy, interest, equanimity. Work on that level. It keeps us current. It keeps us stationed in the present moment. If we start pushing at it, we're we're trying to make things happen. We're going for some kind of breakthrough. And we get entangled in one of the classic knots, papancha knots, we call yogi mind. 
yogi mind, making a mountain of a molehill, or you know, are trying too hard for some experience, some push through. The first year that there was a retreat at this place in Burma, Michelle's been talking about Chazwa Monastery in Chazwa Valley, the Sagain Hills. It was the first Western retreat ever held in the Sagain Hills. The Sagain Hills has about 700 nunneries and monasteries, 7,000 nuns and monks. And it's had Dhamma there for millennia, at least 2,000 years, unbroken for the last thousand or so. And so it was quite novel to have a this group of Western people at, in these, at the, sitting in this particular monastery, a 14th century monastery. And, um, you know, and we're, we, we teach one day with a Western teacher giving Dhamma talk, and the next day with Sayadaw giving classical lineage teachings. Uh, and the idea has been an interweaving fusion between the two that complements the best of both. But the first years of this, you know, there were obstacles and uh, uh, new learning experiences for the Westerners about the traditions in Asia and for the, for the Burmese, the Asians, about this, these strange Westerners. And so one night, one evening, I, had, uh, I, was, uh, I was walking in the village with, some, with a monk friend and a bunch of koyans, they're novices, young monks, maybe eight, nine, ten, like monklets. They came, <laughs> they came running up, Utanzin, that's my name there, Utanzin, Utanzin, Saida, quick, something horrible. And so I came running back with, this, with these uh, koyans, these monklets, and I went up to Saida's place, and, and it was reported to me that there's been this awful blood-curdling scream from the back of the valley. And they were afraid something awful had happened, you know, a, a murder, a suicide, or something really drastic. And the little monks had scurried up in the back looking, you know, and couldn't find anything. But, you know, it was, what was happening and could I help? So I said yes. And so I walked, I started walking up in the back. Halfway up I turned around and I asked the the, the Koyans to just stay back, and I went up alone, went up on the ridge between the Chazwa Valley and the next valley where there was an abandoned Dhamma Hall in the back. And I just stood around there for a while, and pretty soon I heard a Stephen, Stephen, from the bushes. <laughs> and there was a, a yogi there, you know, uh, and really a quite talented yogi from somewhere down under. And, and uh, he, he said, I'm so sorry. I'm so embarrassed. I, that, that was me screaming. <laughs> and then he was hiding in the bushes from the monks, you know, so they wouldn't see him. And I said, well, you know, what happened? And he said, well, I, you know, I was sitting and all this old pain came up and, and a lot of it was around, you know, my father and I was just trying to push through it. So I went to the abandoned monastery thinking no one could hear me and I just let out this primal scream you know, to help it along. <laughs> What he didn't realize is, you know, you know, an empty building, you know, this, it's like this funnel 
to collect sound and to and to charge it down the valley walls, <laughs> you know, and leap over the next valley, so that his primal scream, you know, was something in two thousand years <laughs> had never been heard in the Sagain Hills. And so I said, "It's okay. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Just relax. I'll take care of it." Just go back to noticing your immediate experience. <laughs> and I, I had to go back down and um, explain to Sayadaw <laughs> as carefully as I could that this young man was sitting, he was actually, you know, a very good, talented yogi, and this old, these old deep feelings came up. And, and, uh, and he thought that he it would help things along if he went next door and gave out this big yell. <laughs> and he's going, uh-huh. <laughs> so what happened exactly? And so I tried to just give him mind moment by mind moment, you know, that an, an, image, an image might come up, say of his father, an old feeling come up of, of pain or fear. And that somewhere along in noticing all this just came the urge you know, that something was blocked and that he needed to break through. And he thought that if he yelled, you know, made this big scream, he could break through. And the side is, oh, I see, I see. I think right there he forgot the note unpleasant. Primal scream comes to Sagain Hills. <laughs> Our only task is to be in the present moment. Everything else is taken care of. This shedding of the papancha begins to happen naturally. We need to do two things. We need to bring a, a mindfulness and clear comprehension to the papancha process itself. We need to understand it. It's very strong in the mind. You know, it's, it's Mara's primary tool of distraction. Mara is that mythological uh, being, the embodiment of, of greed, hatred, delusion, or of anti-life or anti-spontaneity the great distractor, the great conjurer. We come to know Mara very well within and however he or she manifests without. So it's a, Papancha is Mara's primary tool. We need to, to understand the strength and grip of Papancha in the mind. Need not dispel it before we see the as-it-is nature of things. Chuck Brady was very clear and, and able to to discern the difference, to describe seeing the world through the grid of when he was bu busy being mission specialist and checking out things and measuring things and so forth. And very clear when that was set aside and his heart opened to the vast mystery of it all. You know, in the same way, uh, we need not completely dispel. Uh, for example, if we're sitting and we hear a car going by, a habit of mind would be perhaps to identify car, maybe an image in the mind. You know, and if we're not mindful, that whole sequence of the immediate impression of sound 
the initial concept, car, and a series of other constructs that erupt, thoughts about the car, uh, that end up in the interpretation that we have of that experience. That experience of hearing becomes the interpretation, car, the like or dislike, and the aversion or attachment. That's usually our experience of, a, of the papancha mind. However, when we're practicing, it can be both some papancha and some of that yata bhuta, the as it isness. So there, we might even immediately connect with this powerful mindfulness and clear comprehension. The mindfulness is the pre-verbal awareness. That's pre-papancha. Before papancha proliferates into the concepts and constructs and interpretation. And our sustained mindfulness is learning to sustain with bare reality, with bare experience. So there might be some moments where we just hear vibrating, vibrating, just the mind is touching these little sound moments, sound waves, sound units, earth and air elements. Just hover with it. No definition. Then there may be another stream of mind that begins the papancha process, identifies it, for example, as a car, and maybe sweeps for some time into the constructs, interpretation, and the like or dislike. And then maybe some judgment. Oh, no, I, I, I can't get this associative mind away. Why can't I just be with pure sound vibration? Why am I thinking about it? Why must I see birds just be with sound? But then if we, stay, if we bring that mindfulness in, notice that proliferating mind without judging it, just be aware of its habit. That's the, the narrative mind, the storytelling mind. There's no harm there. We're, we're seeing it in action now. And as long as we bring the mindfulness in, it's not going to further our delusion. And it will, uh, with mindfulness, we disidentify. That process will grow distant. We can, then the mind again inclines. Sometimes it just seems side by side, almost parallel, because of the swiftness of this pre-verbal awareness. Moments of pure sound vibration, moments of the associated uh, thoughts about it, definitions, back and forth. Be comfortable with that. Don't try to rid the one for the other. If it will just fall away on its own, that's fine. You don't need to get into a conflict with that. The stronger the mindfulness, the more inclined to that yata bhuta, to the just as it isness, pure sensation, pure sound, pure imagery, and so forth. I like to use this illustration of a 13th century Zen master, Dogen, who said, to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion. That's that pushing that trying to break through. But myriad things coming forward and experiencing themselves is awakening. That's the just being in the present moment, leaning back in the moment, letting go the need to control, manipulate experience, to push it in any way. It is this anchoredness and stillness and this silent awareness that most nurtures the power of this preconceptual awareness, mindfulness. 
power is in its subtlety. Now, when we start pushing, it, it, it loses its subtlety and it gets mixed with thought and manipulation. And we start having at least little papanchas on our experience. But the purity of its, its pre-papancha nature, its pre-symbolic, is before the symbolic process of conceptualization, is its great liberating nature. It's how, for example, we come to know the nature of a thought. We can't come to know the nature of a thought with other thoughts. We just can come to have thoughts about them. But the subtlety of a pre-verbal awareness is in that it can know even the most subtle of all experiences in the condition, in conditioned reality, the most subtle sensations, the most subtle mind states. Come to recognize then um, the cloudy connection with, when the, with, the, with experience, with the mind of Papancha, how it separates, how it embellishes, how it fabricates. And we come to know that still and silent, pure connection of pre-verbal awareness and experience. This is what begins to dismantle the grid. This is what begins to diminish the attachment that keeps the grid in revolution, that keeps papancha mind happening. When we're not identified, when we're not being attached, that's when it collapses. That's when Brady saw all these, all the grid of geography and politics completely fall away. Because he just disidentified through the sheer wonder of his view through his window. That pre-verbal awareness is what polishes the naturally radiant mind in the same way we polish uh, a tarnished bronze bowl. The shiny nature is inherent. Merely need to clean it. The metaphor of, of Joseph Campbell, symbol of the earth, and of Brady's experience of the earth from actual space. The view from above is the view of our experience when, we, when the mind is balanced between uh, investigation and calm, between energy and concentration, between that sense of wonder joyous interest, and the non-attachment of equanimity. This brings awareness to that very fine, pre-symbolic, pure presence that's each moment touching the as-it-is nature of the elements of body and mind. Seeing the as-it-isness draws out that innate pull, massive pull to life, to living beings. The, the heart of compassion, that sense of connection. Our hearts tremble with that visceral sense of wanting to be 
connected to be liberated and to help other beings feel unconditional love and be liberated. So we take up our path. We take up the best of conditioned things. This Eightfold Path, which is essentially our mindfulness practice. And we take it to the end. We make it our life. Here in retreat, I, I want to give you a suggestion of how to best utilize your time in, in a 24-hour day that I found really helpful. And that is you, in a 24-hour day, you sleep, whatever you sleep, four hours or five hours, six hours, and then you have 20 hours or 18 hours left, what do you do with them? What happens? Because all those 18 or 20 hours are, are moments in which there can be that, where the view of experience can be through mindful awareness, that pre-verbal awareness. When you report in interviews, for example, just try to report through the lens of mindfulness. What did mindfulness most notice in the sittings that you're reporting? I, I find that I find it useful to take those 20 hours and make four or five little mini days out of them. Because then I find there's more of a sense of that, 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 that's, that a mindfulness then is within reach of that little time allotment. So from 3 a.m., for example, till the sun rises. That would often be considered your first little day. How many sittings? One or two sittings, one or two walkings. I can handle that. I can do my best. That's not too long a day. A few hours, two or three hours, four hours. I'll do my best to navigate through those, through that time, no matter what I do. Sit, walk, bathe, eat, dress, undress. And then the next little day, Again, just sort of have a sense of, your, of a realm, of a domain, and what feels within your reach, maybe from the morning meal to noon, another few hours, four or five hours. Sometimes some of us have more energy at that time. So we can, you know, it's a little longer than those midnight hours. I can do that. You know, one of them is instructions, and, you know, and another is the yogi job, and and there's this sitting and that sitting and maybe an interview, I can pay attention pretty good through that time. I'll try my best for that second day. And your third day, noon to tea, perhaps, or the Dhamma talk. And then your, the next day, from after your practice after the Dhamma talk, until you lay down. Just experiment with that. Experiment with having a sense of what feels within your reach to do? And you can further divide that. In, in sittings or walkings, you can, you can take a piece of your walking and resolve to be exceptionally mindful for the next five minutes of lifting, moving, placing. And really try to feel from within the lifting leg the texture of those flowing sensations. Play with that, with that spirit of wonder, 
of discovery, to bring forth mindfulness, that pre-verbal awareness and its associated energizing and complementing tranquilizing states. That's still all in that simplicity of saying, all we ask is that you be in the present moment. Everything else is taken care of. I'd like to end a beautiful poem by Mary Oliver called The Buddha's Last Instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the East begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two sala trees and he might have said nothing knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over fields. Around him the villagers gathered and stretched to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly, I am not needed, yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Let's sit a moment. 